Greetings again, everyone, to some faces I haven't seen in a while, and also to some new people who are here for the first time. I want to talk about a common misconception of the Christian world. The entire Protestant world believes that the law of God is completely done away. To them, the idea that we would observe what we're observing here today, the weekly Sabbath, that we would do things like stooping over to wash one another's feet, to observe the dietary laws, to involve ourselves in things which to them is Jewish and Old Testament, is as foreign and as strange as we would think some of the rituals of Shintoism or Buddhism or Islam, such as when you're visiting some of the Arab countries, you hear the loudspeaker come on. And we used to call him the Midnight Haranger, you know, because of a certain comic strip with which we were familiar. And you hear it blaring all over the streets of whether it's Cairo or Amman or whatever foreign city you're in in some of the Arab countries. And they're beginning to read the Koran. They have the call to prayer. And people just throng to the various Islamic mosques and skid to their foreheads on the Persian prayer rug, like Anwar Sadat, who was quite proud of and had very prominently here a caliph on his forehead. We've heard people, ministers, talking about get calluses on your knees from prayer. Well, many of these people have calluses on their foreheads. They're never quite proud of them. So to us, this is very, very strange. We might be over there and be very friendly with a Syrian family or an Egyptian family and ask them certain questions about their customs. The other day I was asked, we were down in Florida, and a friend of mine happened to be there at the same time who worked with IBM here in Tyler, and we had a little time to sit around the hotel, and so he asked me, because he loves shrimp, and he loves seafood, and he loves to eat pork, and he loves bacon with his breakfast. He said, Ted, how do you, I mean, justify, I mean, what is your logic behind not eating shrimp and all of this? So I went all the way back through the dietary laws and showed him that it was actually known to humankind well before Sinai, which had him aghast because he didn't even know what in the world Sinai meant. And it was a very laborious discussion because there was no fundamental meeting place for our minds because the man was completely ignorant of what the Bible says, one way or the other, about Old Testament dietary laws. I told him that it was no big deal in one sense of the word that if somebody surreptitiously slipped something into a particular salad or uh, something that I wasn't aware and it was in my food, that Christ covered that by saying whatsoever enters into your body, of course, cannot contaminate the man, but what comes out of your heart and mind, that's the important thing. But I said, we avoid it at all costs if we can, but we don't make a religion out of it. That's not our religion. But he was asking a friend, he's a golfing buddy and a very good friend, about one of my beliefs, and I was beginning to explain it as best I could. Just about every church you know of, with the exception of the Seventh-day Adventists, the Seventh-day Baptists, the Church of God, Seventh-day, the Worldwide Church of God, many others split off from that organization and this one, which really are in the minority. That is, the Seventh-day Sabbatarian organizations are in the minority. Just about every other church you know of, Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Catholics, on and on and on, are laboring under a common misconception that Jesus Christ was like the young man who came to do away with everything that his father ever implemented, that his father came along and implemented harsh, gray, drab, dull, overbearing, impossible-to-obey rules, regulations, laws, statutes, judgments, commandments, all of which were repugnant to the poor people upon whom they were saddled like a, an overbearing yoke, and that for years and generations these poor people just labored under that kind of rigorous religion. And many, you know, many of us Americans feel that a lot of the people in some of the Arab countries just labor under a rigorous religion. If you see an Arab walking along without one hand, most Protestants would say, oh, the poor man, and he probably got that from just doing nothing more than stealing. But you know, you don't have an awful lot of thieves. There are some, I know, but I mean, I am actually more comfortable. I have a very lovely ring that cost me very little compared to what it grew to be worth in the last 25, 30 years. It took me several years to collect when diamonds were probably one-tenth as expensive as they are today. And yet I can walk down a street in Cairo or Amman with my ring and my watch on my hand and wrist in far greater comfort than I can New York, Los Angeles, Detroit, or even Tyler, Texas because of those rigorous laws that many people think are kind of in some way linked 
with the same kind of religion that God allegedly imposed upon the ancient Israelites. I want to deal with at least one part of that common misconception today. Is the law done away? Here are the rules of our study. I'm going to do like I used to do to my second year Bible class and say we may not use a single scripture in the Bible after Exodus 20. We can refer to a couple of them in passing merely to glean a principle, but geographically, historically, ethnically, racially, religiously, sociologically, we're going to confine everything we study to those chapters prior to Exodus, the 20th chapter, which, as you know, is the chapter where we read God gave the Ten Commandments from Sinai. So let's begin by turning to Genesis 2.15 and read what it says in the very first part of the Bible, a part of eleven separate documents which are called the creation hymn. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, and on the seventh day, verse 2, chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, God ended his work which he had made. He didn't end his creating. He was still creating, but he ended his work which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. This is long prior centuries prior to the giving of the law at Sinai. This is at creation approximately 6,000 years ago and approximately 4,000 years before the time of Christ. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Now, to bless it and to sanctify it, the word sanctification means to set apart for a specific holy use or purpose, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So then it talks about the forming of man. And finally, beginning in verse 15, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God, the eternal God, the word Y-H-B-H is translated in the capital letters L-O-R-D, and I prefer eternal. The eternal God commanded the man, saying, oh, well, then God began showing the man who was in charge. God gave an order. When you command someone, you order someone. God ordered the man. God gave the man a commandment. And he said, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die. Now look at this in principle, not just the particular prohibition not to eat of that particular tree, but the principle, an order which carries with it the clearest definition of what the infraction will bring, a commandment, a specified way of doing things, a way of life, a certain prohibition, and carrying with it vast permission. The prohibition, one tree out of probably a hundred thousand varieties. I mean, there were so many fruit and nut trees and palms with everything on there. The palm tree and its almost infinite variety, and I was down in Florida and had the very great thrill of being able to play on one of the most famous golf courses in the United States, the Blue Monster down at Doral. And here were the coconut palms all over the place. Well, I've seen date palms, and of course, all the palm trees have different types of things like coca and coconut and breadfruit and dates and so on. And here were limitless varieties of some of the most beautiful trees, and probably thousands of varieties, of which at least dozens, if not hundreds, were fruit-bearing, nut-bearing, and so on. Food, trees beautiful, pleasant to the eye, with gorgeous blossoms and huge fronds and beautiful leaves and gorgeous fruit. What is prettier than a nice ripe bunch of bananas, or a beautiful ripe peach, or a gorgeous pear shaped so prettily, or a, a beautiful Macintosh apple. They were all there. So this commandment was not necessarily a yoke of bondage. It was a prohibition. It's like saying out of all the trees, they're all fit to eat, they're all good for you, they're good for your health, they look good, they smell good, they taste good, and only one of them is poison to you. Don't touch that one. That's not too limiting, is it? Only one tree out of all of those? And it carries with it a penalty. What was the penalty? Death. Maximum penalty. So by principle, in the second chapter of the book of Genesis, we find God in the position of a commandment-giving God, spelling out an enormous amount of liberty, of permission to take from every other tree, fruit to nut-bearing bush or tree that existed, except one, and if you eat of that one specific one, you will surely die. Now, that means really, ultimately, many people don't understand that. In the 20th chapter of the book of 
Revelation, I'm going to go by principle, as I said. There's the principle given that when death and hell, meaning the dead and the grave, or those buried in it, are cast into the lake of fire, this, quote, is the second death. You may be familiar with that scripture. And it says this is the second death. You may remember that it said it is given to all men to die once, after this the judgment. And the point is that if Adam and Eve had not made any decision one way or the other, had merely not taken to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but had lived their lives, they would surely have physically deteriorated, reached old age and senility, and would eventually, because they were physical organisms and merely dependent upon air and water and the soil and the natural nutrients that God created, they would have simply run out of steam and died, unless God had changed them or supernaturally at the last moment of their lives put them into his kingdom. So death is the ultimate or the second death from which there is no resurrection, but death meaning utter and total destruction for all eternity. The wages of sin is not what my grandmother suffered. I'll make that clear. She was 96. She was a lovely lady. She simply took off her glasses, put it on her Bible, leaned back in her rocking chair, and dozed off in the middle of the afternoon and drifted off in her sleep and died. You cannot ask to have a more pleasant death nor a more rewarding life than my grandmother experienced. When she died, that was not God exacting the penalty for sin. But if she were to be resurrected, not in the first resurrection, when I know she will be resurrected, but resurrected in the resurrection depicted in the 16th chapter of Luke when the rich man comes up and sees nothing but a wall of flame approaching, which is also covered in the last two verses of Revelation 20, this also is the second death and she sees destruction coming, and then she is dead once again after being brought to full conscious human physical life, that is the wages of sin. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. Here's the principle given, defining what is sin. You shall not covet. Don't look at it. Don't lust after it. Don't want it illegally. That's coveting. You shall not steal. Don't take what is not yours. It's mine. It doesn't belong to you. Keep your hands off of it. Don't dishonor your only parent. I'm your only father. I'm telling you as a child what not to do. If you do it, the penalty is death. That's quite a principle. God is a commandment giver. Man is the commandment receiver. God sets out the parameters and says what and where and when and why and how. And then the man decides whether. The man does not decide what and where and when and how and why. He only decides whether he will obey or whether he will not obey. Let's notice Genesis 3 and verse 6. The woman saw, she looked with her eye, that the tree was good for food. It was pleasant to the eyes. The tree desired. So she lusted. And the human physical desire to reach out and take something that is pretty. Many people in this room, many people hearing my voice on this tape program, any number of people as a little child have reached out and stolen something like a little doll, piece of paper, a little book, piece of fruit from a neighbor's backyard fence, a marble in a five-and-dime store, reached out with their little hands as little children and taken something that didn't belong to them. The woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of both of them were open, and they felt guilty. And I won't divert into that. The first sin had nothing to do with sex. God had told them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. And it says in Hebrews 13:8 that the marital bed is undefiled and there is no sin involved. So another great misconception. And many of the great churches who actually think and teach to put people under a kind of an Augustinian guilt complex about sex, that the very first sin was Adam and Eve getting together as human beings in marriage and... Uh, conceiving a child, which is absolute nonsense. So they broke, actually, in principle, four separate commandments. And when you covet or lust, you also break, as the Apostle Paul said, quote, covetousness which is idolatry, you break the first and second commandment to have no other gods before God and not to make a graven image. You make an image out of a piece of fruit. So actually, by extrapolation, they broke perhaps six of the Ten Commandments by this one act. But let's go along because I have some very interesting scriptures to give you. In Genesis 4 and verse 8, very, very quickly we see that Cain talked with Abel his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother. This was jealousy. It was also covetousness because he desired the blessing that his brother obviously was receiving. 
he rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And so he killed him. And he was cursed and sent as a vagabond. The penalty of death was not exacted immediately, but it certainly was going to be held in abeyance until the end of his life and until that point in time when he has either an opportunity to repent or he's in the final great resurrection and is destroyed. Genesis 6 and verse 5, we notice the entire condition of mankind. Gigantism began to develop. Men were actually intermarrying in ways that they should not. I won't delve into that right now. That's a completely different subject. I had to explain on this trip as well, where did Cain get his wife? At least two different people in two different places, both in Fort Lauderdale and up in Tampa, St. Pete, wanted to know the answers to where did Cain get his wife. God saw, verse 5, that the wickedness of man, that is Ra, R-A, and it comes from the root Ra, R-A apostrophe A-H in the Hebrew language, which means exactly what it says, evil, filth, crud. It's almost like a parent saying Ra to a child when he picks up something dirty. It's a primary root in the Hebrew language. It means wickedness, evil, or sin. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Now, if you think about our politicians today, if you think about the many, many people out here who are terrorists, henchmen of men like the Ayatollah Khomeini, or perhaps Gaddafi, a new group now in the United States, young people shaving their heads, calling themselves skinheads over here in Dallas, working around the fringes of the Ku Klux Klan, and becoming kind of like neo-Nazi racist demonstrators against the establishment, against the police, against, of course, so-called Zionists and Jews and various other organizations in the United States. There are so many people that you could label whose minds are simply just evil continually. Now, basically, you can apply that in a far broader generic term to all of humanity because human nature is vanity, jealousy, covetousness, lust, and greed. And from the time of our little childhood, we are thinking only in selfish motives of wanting to get, to accumulate, to have before the other fellow has, to compile, to accumulate material goods, to have fun, pleasures, and enjoyment, to just drink and to take in. But the idea of helping, serving, giving, and sharing is a rather foreign idea to most people, at least by nature. This was so bad that it said it repented the eternal, that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. That's like saying a mother and a father who have nurtured a child and loved that child, and the child grows up to be a full, mature young man, and is so dirty and so rotten and so unprincipled and so evil that the parents are literally saying, I wish he'd never been born. And so God is shaking his head in disgust and is actually grieved to his heart, I wish I had never made a man. And God doesn't lie. God isn't playing games. He's not saying this just for spiritual salt and pepper to kind of flavor the Bible and make an interesting reading. It came to the point where Almighty God in heaven above looked at people just like us in this room and looked at the way our minds work, by and large, unless or until we're converted, just looked at the kind of people we are and said, I'm so sick to my heart, it makes me wish I'd never made any of them. That's the way he felt about it. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created. Now, wait a minute. Here we are again. God is in the position of commander. God sets out all these wonderful liberties and blessings. Be, be uh, fruitful and replenish the earth. And the nicest command Adam ever heard, wasn't it? Look at that lovely creature God gave him. You think that some of these women that win beauty contests today are beautiful? I mean, Adam had to have the most perfect human physical specimen that's ever walked the earth, in my own way of thinking, because... The, the human female was made with the very hands of God. And Adam had to be one of the most beautiful physical specimens that any human being ever looked at, that the female ever looked at, because God made those two. We talk about Greek gods, you know, and sex goddesses and so on. Of course, you can only get so good, let's face it. I mean, a, a beautifully uh, athletically proportioned and conditioned and good muscle tone, hardly an ounce of fat and so on, on a very young body. I mean, it just gets so beautiful. But that's the way those people look to each other. And so look what God told them. All of this long life of being happily married together and teaching your children. I mean, you, you don't want to look at, at each little one out of 100 things that God says don't do without also investigating the 99 beautiful, wonderful things he said do do that you can go ahead and enjoy. But here is God in the position 
of appraising the imagination and thoughts of the heart of man, man's deeds, man's thoughts, man's way of life, his desires, his society. Being grieved to his heart that he had made man, and then deciding what the penalty is going to be. And what is the penalty? Destruction. Kill them all. The penalty is death. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls. It repents me that I made them. The whole thing is a wretched mess. That's like taking the Mona Lisa and just taking one bit of tar and smearing it all over her nose. It ruins the whole painting. I mean, God wasn't finding anything of redemptive quality, even in the beautiful birds that he made. The little hummingbirds were suddenly not that pretty to them anymore because it was all wrecked because of what man was doing. Murder, sodomy, looking and appraising at our society today, like the men stand in the streets of San Francisco, where they're out there parading around, get the troops out of Honduras. And God looked down upon the deeds of man and became grieved to his heart and decided to destroy them all. God looked, verse 12, upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. That can be read two ways. It, frankly, I believe, means that, it's, that all flesh had corrupted God's way, but it can also mean that flesh had corrupted their own way, meaning that the correct way of life they had so twisted and perverted that it was absolutely ugly and corrupt before God. So he told Noah, we read that story, and I won't belabor that because I want to go along because of the subject that we're dealing with today, to make an ark. And he was to take food into the ark. God was going to destroy everything and everyone. And again, God is the commander. God gives the gift of life and says, walk ye in this way. When they rebel against it, what was the penalty? Death. Death by drowning. Irrevocable principle stated over and over again long before Sinai. Chapter 7. He said, Only Noah have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast you shall take to thee by sevens. How many Methodists, Baptists, and Presbyterians know that scripture's in the Bible? Of every clean beast you shall take to thee by sevens. Well, what makes it clean? It doesn't say here. You don't find out until much later. The male and his female. How did Noah know what was clean? Well, because, you see, what you have here in these first few chapters, for one thing, prior to the flood, Genesis 7 and 8, you've got one-sixth of all of human history until right now today in the month of March in Tyler, Texas, haven't you? You've got approximately 1,000 years. And we once did some studies in my class that proved that by giving the average age of 25 before marriage and an average family of whatever we decided upon, four, five, or six, and all of them healthy and nobody dying from disease, that we could have had four and one-half billion human beings on the earth by the time of the flood. That's like the old question, would you rather have a penny doubled in value every day for 30 days or rather have a million dollars right now? And you better take the penny because I forget, I've done it recently on my calculator and I forget whether it's close to six million or over five, but it's incredible the amount of difference. In the last few days, it doubles and redoubles astronomically. Well, the same thing is true of the human procreative ability that in that number of years, we could have had perhaps four and a half billion human beings on the earth by the time of the flood. I doubt that there were that many. I'm just saying that it's humanly possible. There might have been as many as 800,000 or maybe a half a billion or, or, or perhaps uh, two billion. I just don't know. But there were a lot of people. We tend to think of a few families around here and there, like some uh, isolated part of Africa with just a very few villagers around, but it wasn't that way at all. A little comment a little later on on writing and some other factors that some of the scholars have taken issue with. Of every clean beast you shall take by seven, seven pair. And those that are not clean by two, the male and the female. Verse 8, the clean beasts and the beasts that are not clean, the fowls and so on and everything that creeps upon the earth. All flesh died, verse 21 and 2, all flesh whose life, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life. The breath of life is where your life comes from, not a soul. And was in the dry land, died. Now, over in verse 20, we see the Noatian sacrifice after the flood, and we have to ponder this. We're beginning to discover all sorts of things that we would normally think had to do with a ceremonial religion, that had to do with post-Sinai and had to do with Le Levi or the Levitical priesthood. Noah built an altar unto the eternal. Why do you suppose he did that? Did God say anything other than these few little portions of history that we have? 
you realize that what we have here is not even .001% of what was written, let alone what was spoken to these people? You know that for years, even as recently as perhaps the mid-1800s, many so-called scholars began to argue that Moses could not have written the books of Moses because writing wasn't invented until that time, and that only in recent years archaeologists have begun to discover things like some of the clay tablets in cuneiform, and it goes back perhaps to the 1700s, basically the age of discovery and of scholar, uh, scholarship and so on in the 1800s when men began to unearth some of the uh, tells, as they were called, or the mounds over in the Middle East, and per certain men like Layard and many others began to decipher some of the ancient languages. You can read even in Halley's handbook of the discovery of the Tel El Armarna tablets, of the Rosetta stone, of the Code of Hammurabi, or Hammurabi, which I have seen over in the British Museum. And you can see the uh, very important Rosetta stone, which I mentioned, which actually has three languages, Greek, Demotic, and the Egyptian hieroglyphic, which was the key to unlock those ancient tongues. What I'm saying is, and we'll come across it time and time again, that these people knew how to write, that God had revealed to those people, and they were intelligent enough that by the time that Adam was grown uh, 25, 30 years, they were already beginning to make symbols which stood for various words and sounds, and that writing was known, and that actual records were kept. There is strong indication that what Moses merely did was to collect records which had been kept by the ancient patriarchs that had come down through that whole lineage of patriarchs, from Seth down to Noah's time, and that's another separate subject, you can absolutely demonstrate that Noah was not the seventh from Adam. And I've gone through that before. He was the seventh, not of the firstborn, but the seventh patriarch, and you can demonstrate that. And those patriarchs had God's truth and God's knowledge, and the knowledge of God's weekly Sabbath and of his calendar, of his laws of dietary laws, of statutes and judgments long before Sinai, and they wrote them down. There were written laws, yes, even laws engraved in stone, long before the codification of the Ten Commandments at Sinai. The Ten Commandments of God were not the first time in all of history that anyone had ever engraved a law in a rock. The Code of Hammurabi may well be the Code of Amraphel. Amraphel and Hammurabi may be the same man, placed in a border between the ancient land of Ur and the Chaldees and Sinai at the time of Abraham, and is now, of course, discovered, and in the museum, I believe either the Louvre or the British Museum, and is known to man. Some people argue about which ancient king it was. Long antedated the time of Moses, and even during that time, Customs laws, certain restrictions and rules and regulations, sometimes in two or three languages, were erected at a border crossing, where a main caravan trail would come along from one border of one ethnic group or cultural group to another, and here would be a huge rock, like an obelisk, and it would detail, just as you go from Arizona to California, it'll have, welcome to California, tell you what the speed limit is, maybe have some restrictions involving agriculture or produce and so on. Well, anciently, they had laws and regulations posted at the borders so that wayfarers and travelers could stop and read it and find out what the king of this nation required of them, including taxation. It's all in part of the Code of Hammurabi. Perhaps more reference to that a little bit later on. So clean and unclean was known. You can absolutely guarantee that long before the Levitical priesthood. Question. Is clean and unclean ceremonial having to do with the Levitical priesthood in the time of the Jews, the ancient Jewish religion? Well, there was no Jew yet. No Jew walked the earth until after Judah, and then even way later than that, when his children began to be called in the vernacular Jew instead of simply Judahites or whatever they would have been called. So this is not ceremonial. This is dietary. It's just what's good to eat and what isn't good to eat. Just dietary. It has to do with health. It has nothing to do with the priesthood. Now, what about sacrifices? Was it ceremonial? Well, in one sense, he was offering thanks. How did Moses come to know that God would perhaps be pleased by the symbolic offering of a clean animal and the preparation of its meat and the pleasing odor of, like a New York cut steak, wafting up into the evening sky, just like you going by your neighbor's backyard and saying, I think somebody's going to have a barbecue, and decide that that would be pleasing to God? unless God had told them so. They didn't just invent it on their own behalf. So God promised he would never curse the land again. 
Let's go a little bit further here and notice in the 13th chapter of Genesis, I'm going to skim along and just pick certain scriptures to remember to stay within our constraints or parameters of not using scriptures after Exodus 20. Speaking of Sodom, when Lot was going to be taken out of Sodom by the two angels, Abram was to rise up and to try to get Lot and his family out of there. It says of the Sodomites, verse 13, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Eternal exceedingly. Now, this is a very astute audience, biblically. Most of you would be able to raise your hand and say, I know where that scripture is. What is sin? First John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. Let me deviate from our regulation only in principle. To give you a principle right quickly, to turn to Romans 4, 15, a scripture that is very, very important. And this has nothing to do with ceremonies or Levites or circumcision or sacrifices. It's merely a principle of the word of God. And it says this, Because the law works wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression simple. Let's put it in modern English. You can't be arrested for running a stop sign if a stop sign doesn't exist. Just that simple. The only way these men of Sodom, verse 13, Genesis 13, could have been called sinners is if something called sin existed. And sin cannot exist except that there are proscriptions against it. Simple. That's as absolute as the rising of the sun, so to speak, or the revolution of the earth. You can't have sin without sin being defined and having certain actions which are called sin. Now, these were rotten, filthy, diseased, dirty, wretched perverts who deserved to be smashed by an ongoing Peterbilt walking across that street out there, going full bore, 60 miles an hour, don't bother with a horn, it's a, it's a sodomite, get him. I mean, that's what God felt about these people. And that's exactly what he did to them when he burnt to a crisp tens of thousands of these rotten, wretched perverts. Now, that is a sin. You know, I mean, you just you can't say it firmly enough. If anybody thinks that God did not have laws which spelled out what was sin, and on the other hand, this vast liberty, as I said, of what isn't sin, of the tremendous, wonderful way of life with, within which you could live, and which was not confining or constraining, but was beautiful. Well, we just don't know what we're talking about. There were laws, and the laws were even written laws. They were carried by the patriarchs. They were carried by the heads of tribes and families. They were read and recited. The first time in history that a law was written was not when God, with his own finger, etched them in stone. They'd been written by many other kings, and even pagan kings who had a certain amount of knowledge, as we shall see, of God's law. Very important verse, Genesis 13, 13. Easy to remember, 13, 13. The men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the eternal. That's God's laws we're talking about. Not the laws of Sodom and Gomorrah, but God's laws before the eternal, exceedingly. And we see then, what did God do to them? Once again, God's laws, sin is defined, the penalty is death, and death by fire. Like a little microcosm, a little example of Gehenna fire. Let's go now to Genesis 17 and verse 10 and show you something else that is long antedating the Ten Commandments. Here is the covenant between God and Abram, his covenant defined, verses 1 through about 8. And God said, verse 9, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore, you and your seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after thee. Every man-child among you shall be circumcised. Well, is circumcision merely ceremonial, something that Levi and the Jews foisted off upon people? Is it only the Jews who became circumcised? Abraham wasn't a Jew. His great-grandson might have been called one. There came Isaac, and then Jacob, his name was changed to Israel, who had a kid named Judah. So circumcision began with God's covenant with Abram, long before Sinai. So here we have clean and unclean. And circumcision, as well as every principle spelled out in the Ten Commandments, long before Sinai. Let's go a little further to the 19th chapter in verse 3. Here, God is going to rescue Lot. And we see a little bit of an example, a little bit of a type, of the first Passover, in a sense. Because even as Adam, I'm sorry, even as Moses 
and, of course, Aaron were the two who are also a shadowy type of the two witnesses who went before Pharaoh and his magicians, Janus and Jambres, and said, let my people go. So here you see God's people characterized by Lot and his family, righteous Lot, he is called in the New Testament, who are to be taken out of this wretched, filthy Babylon of sin, Sodom and Gomorrah, by two angelic messengers. And what do they do? Verse 3, they go into Lot's home, and in this very dark night of hideous demonic sin abroad in the streets, of prowlers beating on the door, wanting to assault these angels and to have perverted sex with them, for some reason, why? Did Lot concoct this idea out of his own head? Did, did the angels tell him this is what he ought to do? Was it simply that time of the year? I think a combination of the latter two is the most likely. For some reason, they entered into Lot's house, and he made them a feast. What feast would he have made them? And he baked them unleavened bread, and they did eat. The feast of unleavened bread, at least in a shadowy pre-type, a type way before it was actually revealed, way later on to the ancestors, of some of these people, well, not these people, because, of course, Lot's ancestors are Edom and Moab, but at least Abraham's family. So a little bit of a shadowy type of the Days of Unleavened Bread. Interesting, in connection with a feast, the only feast we know of where unleavened bread is used, and also a type where death is prowling in the streets and God is going to rescue only one family out of a whole city, and unleavened bread is eaten behind closed doors. Just kind of interesting in passing. But just look at some of the shadowy types that the Bible does give us. In Genesis 20, in verse 6, a very important scripture, Abimelech sees Sarah. We know the story. She's quite elderly, the way we would look at it, and yet probably looked about 25, the way our physical uh, uh, you know, bodies are today, because she was still so attractive, so lovely, and of such nice light skin and complexion, perhaps long blonde hair, and she was called fair of countenance, that Abimelech, who was a swarthy king of this particular nation, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah, verse 2. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night, verse 3, chapter 20 of Genesis, and said, You are as good as a dead man. God saying, once again, what the penalty for sin is. He's saying the penalty for this is death. Because of the woman you have taken, because she is a man's wife. We're dealing here then with adultery, aren't we? Kidnapping, but maybe he had that province or that, that right because he was a king. And, of course, Abram had told, Abraham had told a kind of a so-called white lie, a half-untruth, but really it was a total lie, because he'd said, that's my sister. He began to argue and said, verse 5, didn't he tell me that she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he's my brother. I got it out of both of their mouths. The integrity of my heart and innocency of my hands, have I done this? And God said unto him in a dream, yea, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. I also withheld you from what? From sinning against me. You see, all sin is against God. Now, other people can be victimized by sin. But basically, you repent of sin before God. You don't wash your linen before the general public. You repent of sin before God. I withheld thee from sinning against me. When David prayed after his affair with Bathsheba and causing Uriah the Hittite to go to the front lines and become killed in the famous 51st Psalm. He said, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Sin is against God. I withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore I suffered thee not to touch her. Abimelech called Abraham, verse 9, and he said, Notice a pagan king. Notice what he understood. Abraham, what have you done to me? Why have, how have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? What is sin? The transgression of God's law. God himself by a dream revealed this great principle or law of God, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the penalty is death. And this is a pagan to whom God reveals this. But he was knowledgeable enough about God's law that he said, if I had done this, it would have brought death a great sin upon me. I would have been blood guilty long before Sinai and not even of the Eber strain, not even of the Abramic family, a complete stranger, a foreigner who understood a part of the principles of God's law. Let's go a little further to Genesis 21 and verse 4. Genesis 21 and verse 4. 
Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight day, days old, as God had commanded him. So all down through their lineage, even to the time of Moses, as we will see, circumcision was a symbol of the covenant between God and Abraham. Now, one of the most important scriptures in all of this, let's go to the 26th chapter of the book of Genesis, and let's bear in mind what it says in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, To this man will I look, to him it is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. What we're going to read is the word of God. And there are thousands of pastors in thousands of pulpits all over this country who would refuse to read this scripture, who will refuse to acknowledge it is in the Bible, and will refuse to preach it to their congregations because it knocks into a cocked hat their carefully concocted story of the so-called nailing to the cross of all of God's Ten Commandments. What Levi did not bring in, then the abolition of the Levitical priesthood cannot cause to be done away. This long precedes Levi. God, again, is blessing Abraham. And he says in verse 5, because that Abraham obeyed my voice, that's the verbal command, and kept my charge, that is the commission to him, my commandments, my statutes, that is a written code, and my laws, breaking them up exactly as we see them done time and again in the Old Covenant after the introduction of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, commandments, statutes, and laws having to do with a way of life, having to do with one's neighbor, with your cattle, with landmarks, with laws of inheritance, with laws that had to do with the protection of one's property or inheritance that you leave to a child. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. This is not some separate code of commandments, because God says, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed. And he said, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Genesis 39, verses 6 and 9. Let's go to that right quickly. Genesis 39, verses 6 and 9. Joseph was apparently quite a handsome man. A man named Potiphar, who was an offer of Pharaoh, had a rather licentious wife. She looked upon Joseph, and she wanted him. Joseph, of course, had found grace in the sight of God. He was a goodly person, it said in verse 6, and well-favored. And it came to pass after these things, verse 7, that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master doesn't know anything about me in this house and, and doesn't, wouldn't know about that. He wouldn't understand it, but he's given me total control. I'm his kind of majordomo here. He has committed all that he has to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It was a sin to commit adultery long before the statement, Thou shalt not commit adultery, in the Ten Commandments of God. And he knew that the penalty would be death. Well, I won't read the whole story of how he tried to get away from her, and she actually yanked his clothes off and he ran away naked, but you can read a little bit about human nature in the Scripture there in this 39th chapter of Genesis. Exodus 1, we'll go to the book of Exodus in verse 17. The midwives understood that this decree, even though it came from Pharaoh, would have been murdered. And it said in verse 16, they were told when they did the office of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and they were upon the stools, which we've seen actually in archaeology examples of, which showed that unlike a lot of the practices today where they let a woman lie flat on her back, they were actually in a sort of a sitting position with the legs raised up on a stone basin that was carved out. It was actually a birthing stool. And that's what this word meant. And that the minute those children were born upon these birthing stools, if it were a boy, these midwives were told to kill him. If a daughter, she was to about, uh, be allowed to live. But the midwives feared God. Now, this is not conclusive all by itself. It were the only scripture we had from Exodus 20 to Genesis 1, I agree. But nevertheless, it does show the midwives feared God because they had knowledge that if you killed a person, that was murder. And they feared God. And because they feared God and his laws, they risked being killed themselves and having the Pharaoh find out and put them to death, refusing to kill these poor innocent little babies, which is, of course, how Moses came to survive. In Exodus 4, you will read of the circumcision of Moses' son. I won't belabor that and stop to read all of it. 
Exodus 5, you will see how Moses said to the Pharaoh, verse 1, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And we all know that God began to reveal his annual holy days long prior to the Exodus, long prior to the very first one of the plagues, all of the plagues which are indicative and in typology, an example of the seven last plagues, but that God's annual holy days began to be revealed and the very reason why God said let them go is so they could go out and hold the Passover and the days of unleavened bread before God in the wilderness. Now let's go to Exodus 15 and verse 26. And I won't even go through Exodus 12, the Passover, all the ordinances of the Passover and the days of unleavened bread. Very cogent, very powerful, very important to what I'm talking about because, again, by extension, you cannot obey the seventh Sabbath law or the fourth commandment without seeing what God said in Exodus 31, my Sabbaths, plural, shall ye keep. It is a sign between me and thee in your generations forever. It makes no sense for any Sabbath-keeping church, including the Church of God's seventh day, who will not observe the annual holy days, to accept the Sabbath, the weekday Sabbath, without accepting all of the annual holy days. You cannot accept one without the other. And they're introduced in the very first, as we've seen, examples in the book of Genesis, a shadowy type clear back in ancient Sodom. And, of course, the revelation of the Passover and the days of unleavened bread before Sinai and when God was pulling his people out of Egypt as a captive race of people to make them his own chosen nation. So here, in the 15th chapter of Exodus and verse 26, Exodus 15 and verse 26, he said, if you will diligently hearken to the voice of the Eternal your God and will do that which is right in his sight and will give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I have brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Eternal that healeth thee, or Yahweh Rophika, God your healer. So here again, his commandments already known, his statutes already written, already understood, are referred to. Chapter 16, verse 4, God says, I will rain bread from heaven, and the people shall go out and gather a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will walk, meaning live, according to my law, walk in my law or not. What was his law? Did his law come into existence when he wrote the Ten Commandments? Oh, of course not. That is merely the formal codification of the Ten Commandments in the most durable writing materials known to man, stone to show its perpetuity, but it had existed as a very part of God's nature, of God's love, of his character, it illustrates his purpose for man, how to love God, how to love neighbor, and a total way of life that Almighty God revealed to mankind. It's a part of the very extension of God's nature, the Ten Commandments of God. Not some arbitrary law, the way they try to portray it, which Jesus had to nail to his cross. Exodus, the 16th chapter. Beginning in verse 23, Moses told them, the Eternal had said, Tomorrow is the rest of the holy Sabbath unto the Lord. But wait, this is before Sinai. They had lost sight of the weekly Sabbath in their pagan sojourn in Egypt. They had lost complete sight of God's cycle of time. They are now beginning to have it revealed. What was revealed first? The Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Tomorrow is the holy Sabbath. God began to reveal the holy Sabbath to them. And this was not the very first time. It's merely for emphasis that he is reiterating, this is Friday, preparation day, tomorrow's the Sabbath. Bake that which you will bake today and see that which you will see, and that which remains over lay up for you to be kept until the morning. And verse 25, Moses said, Eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the eternal. Today you shall not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, in it there shall be none. God then says to them, verse 28, Long before Sinai, they're right at the foot of Sinai virtually, they're in the wilderness, they're coming closer to Sinai, but he's still referring back to all of their murmurings from the time they crossed the Red Sea, and he says to them, how long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? And then we come to Exodus 20, the 19th chapter where they promise to obey his covenant and they will do everything Almighty God says to do and the giving of the commandments of God. And let's refresh our memory right quick in conclusion. 
the 20th chapter of the book of Exodus, God said this, I am the Eternal your God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the eternal thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them. Some say the translation ought to be the thousandth generation of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Millions do it. For the Eternal will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. There are many ways to do that, and that's a separate sermon all by itself. Read my booklet on the Ten Commandments. Remember. Why remember? Because you're looking back to creation, and by this time the Sabbath law had been in existence for perhaps close to 2,000 years. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because it was originally made holy at creation. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal thy God, not of the Jews, but of God. In it you shall not do any work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the eternal made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore, the Eternal blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Eternal thy God giveth thee, as Paul said, the first commandment with promise. Thou shalt not do rothsack, which is in Hebrew, murder. You shall do no murder. You shall not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not lust or covet after thy neighbor's wife, nor his servant, nor his maidservant, or ox, or ass, or anything else that is your neighbor's. And the people heard lightnings and thunderings and removed far off and said, Don't let God talk to us any more, lest we die, but let Moses speak unto us. But they had said, All that thou hast spoken, we will do. So until next time. I hope this has at least been interesting to you.